Good morning, Stockholm. Good afternoon, Latakia. And good evening, Shanghai. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue Senior Editor Valentina Calvi to discuss Italy's new AI policy and the arrest of an American journalist in Russia. It's all coming up. Morning, Val. How are you? Doing well, Ethan. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. How are you? I am doing great, and it is wonderful to have you here, and you're making your inaugural appearance on the right day, because <laughs> this first story is about Italy, your native country. Uh, so what's going on there? Yes, yes, it is. Um, so this is an interesting one, and it'll be certainly a story to keep an eye on. Uh, I think a lot of policymakers will be watching closely to see how this plays out. So on Friday of last week, the Italian government temporarily banned ChatGPT. I'm actually sure most people know and you know have heard of ChatGPT, but basically it's an AI that's able to essentially write essays and cookbooks and computer code based solely on a prompt that someone gives it. It's a fascinating and powerful powerful piece of technology, I think. Um, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it will revolutionize the world if it continues to be used so widely. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> you and I often joke that it'll come for our jobs next, but it <laughs> isn't really a joke. If you know, this is really disruptive technology. So it's no surprise that regulators around the world are keeping a close eye on it. So are those the sort of concerns that led Italian regulators to, to ban ChatGPT on Friday? Um, no, funnily enough, they weren't. Those concerns aren't exactly what put ChatGPT um, in the crosshairs. Officially, from Italy's Data Protection Authority, um, they say that the software unlawfully collected data and failed to verify the age of its users. So those are the two main problems that the um, Garante has um, with ChatGPT. And so it could be more of a temporary ban, but it also might not be. Italy has given ChatGPT's creators, uh, a company called OpenAI, I'm sure you've heard of them, 20 days to disclose more information about what kind of user data it collects, and then authorities will make a final decision. Uh, now, some Italian politicians are already suggesting that the company should and will be reinstated, so it's a developing situation. And um, part of the reason regulators were so um, cued into ChatGPT is because European countries are very, very sensitive about internet privacy. I mean, you might remember that the EU passed a landmark privacy bill in, um, I think it was 2018, called the General Data Protection Regulation. We call it the GDPR for short. Mm -hmm. um, and that requires companies to seek all sorts of approval before collecting user data. And, you know, it was and still is a landmark piece of legislation. Um, but I think the other reasons that regulators are so cued in um, is because of what we've been talking about. This is, you know, a company that has the potential to really fundamentally change the world and the world of work. Uh, and pol policymakers aren't keen on letting it do that without some, you know, quite serious monitoring. How are other governments reacting to this ban? Well, actually, funny you should ask, um, Germany's Data Protection Authority has said that they might follow Italy's lead 
Um, whereas lots of other countries are considering legislation to at least regulate AI. But governments have a long way to go before they're able to strike a balance on this stuff. I think that's what makes Italy's ban so interesting because, you know, they're the first ones to cross the Rubicon, actually the virtual <laughs> Rubicon, let's put it that way. <laughs> On one hand, it shows that its regulators are taking concerns about this new tech and chat GPT seriously. But on the other hand, it's doing so with such a broad, broad brush um, without fully considering either the legality of a ban and, you know, considering the fact that there is no first mover advantage really in banning chat GPT. You know, for all the concerns about this program, it really is a powerful tool. Like, you know, according to one forecast, AI is going to boost China's GDP by 26% by 2030, by the end of this decade. And that's not really something that governments can afford to forget or ignore. So simply banning it outright doesn't seem quite like an end solution. Regulators need to find you know, a middle ground between a world where AI takes all of our jobs <laughs> and where we just outright ban it. Um, so I think where I stand is, yes, this technology needs to be regulated, but bans kind of make little sense in this day and age. So you're, you're talking about, you know, the need to strike a balance here. I think that's absolutely right. I, and to your point, the countries or companies that can harness the power of ChatGPT and, and similar technology are likely to outcompete those that don't. So, who's capable of striking that balance in regulation? Um, well, you know, some figures in the private sector are at least trying to wrap their heads around this problem. Um, you know, last Wednesday, a group of, I think, more than a thousand prominent tech leaders, including Elon Musk and Apple founder Steve Wozniak, um, signed an open letter calling on OpenAI, uh, the company that you know made ChatGPT, to take ChatGPT offline and give society somewhat like a, a chance to adjust to this new technology. And because, you know, this tech, like ChatGPT came out in November, so we haven't had that much time to really come to terms with it and, and fully appreciate what, what it will mean for us uh, and for the future. And so these tech leaders warned that it could pose a profound risk to society and humanity, which are, you know, pretty strong words. Um, and they also said that a pause would give policymakers time to introduce shared safety protocols for AI systems. But these tech leaders also said that if such a pause wasn't adopted, then governments should step in and institute a moratorium, which essentially is exactly what Italy is doing. Today's show is brought to you by The Daily Upside. The trends shaping the investment landscape are moving faster than ever before. Fortunately, we have The Daily Upside. This free newsletter is a veritable goldmine of deep insights on biased reporting and is packed with great analysis. It was founded by a team of Wall Street insiders, bankers, and scholars and delivers industry-level analysis with absolutely zero BS. So join 950,000 subscribers, including the team at International Intrigue, who trust The Daily Upside every day. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. 
All right, welcome back. Val, next up, we're talking about something that has become all too familiar in recent years and has really become another important dimension of the Russo-Ukraine war. So what's the story? Yeah, so the story is the story of Evan Gershkovich, who is a Russian-based reporter for the Wall Street Journal. As I'm sure many of you heard, Gershkovich um, has reported from Russia for several years. His family is from Russia originally, uh, but he's built his life there as well. Um, unfortunately, last Wednesday, I believe on the 29th of March, he was arrested by the Russian FSB, which is the successor agency to the famed KGB, um, while reporting on the notorious mercenary group Wagner Group um, from the city of Yekaterinburg, which is around 1,400 kilometers east of Moscow, I'd say. Um, Russian officials say that, you know, he was engaged in espionage, which Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal and the U.S., all deny. And he's being held in a prison in Moscow while he awaits trial. Coincidentally, or, you know, perhaps maybe not, this is the same prison that Stalin used during the Great Purge from 1936 and 1938, which led to deaths of up to 1.2 million dissidents. Wow. Um, I mean, I, I, the, the symbolism here seems pretty telling. Yeah, I think it really is. And here's the thing. Gershkovich is hardly the first American detained in Russia on what appeared to be, you know, trumped up charges. But he is the first American journalist detained since 1986. And... 1986 was during the Cold War. So since the Cold War ended in 1991, no American journalist has ever been arrested in Russia. You know, you can really say this is a major escalation in Russia's attempts to intimidate reporters and suppress press freedom. You know, in my mind, Russia is essentially saying to any other journalist operating in the country that it's willing to arrest anyone who writes uh, about things that they don't like. If you're willing to detain someone from one of the biggest and most influential newspapers in the U.S., think about what they might be willing to do journalists from smaller countries who write for smaller papers. And, you know, the bigger picture here is that being a journalist isn't always a safe job, unfortunately. Last year, the nonprofit Committee to Protect Journalists recorded 363 instances where journalists were arrested. And this year, so far, four journalists have already been killed while doing their job while reporting. Val, you mentioned that other Americans have been detained in Russia. How did their stories end? Well, you know, some of them are still ongoing. So we have Paul Whelan, a formal, former Marine. He was arrested in 2018 on espionage charges as well, and he was sentenced to 16 years in prison. Um, others, like American basketball star Brittany Griner, were more lucky. On 17th February of last year, one week before the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, Griner was arrested at an airport in Moscow um, after attempting to board a plane with a small amount of hashish oil. And, you know, she got to Russia, she was detained, sentenced to, I think, nine years in prison. But after several months, she um, was able to be rescued by the Biden administration, who agreed to swap Griner for a notorious arms dealer named Victor Bout, who uh, was also, you know, also known as the Merchant of Death. Val, I'm sorry. They, they <laughs> with all due respect to, to Brittany Griner, of course, but they, they traded a basketball player for the Merchant of Death. Well, yeah, and that's the other reason that Russia has detained Gershkovich is that he can be leveraged to get Russians released from U.S. custody. 
And in these situations, democracies almost invariably come out as the losing end of these swaps, partly because their criminal justice systems are fairer, so they don't arbitrarily detain foreign citizens. Um, but it's also because leaders in democracies experience much more public pressure in ways that autocrats simply don't. So, you know, citizens of democracies don't like it when their fellow citizens are locked up without due cause, and they can really put a lot of pressure on, for example, the US president to act and, you know, give up important figures to get um, someone like Brittany Griner home. And that's kind of, you know, the definition of asymmetric warfare. So are democracies then running the risk of creating an incentive for this sort of behavior? I mean, you always hear in, in action movies, characters say that line about, you know, not negotiating with terrorists. Yeah, I mean, that's a great line. But um democracies all around the world do it. And, you know, you're absolutely right. And there is this incentive that is created. Uh, but, you know, w what is the alternative? I mean, look, Gershkovich is caught in a geopolitical uh, conflict that's unfolding between the US and Russia. It has nothing to do with him, but he was caught between these two big powers. In the meantime, though, he's a US citizen living in terrible conditions and his life is genuinely in danger. So, Realistically, you look at the plate, there were no good options and, you know, leaving him there might be the worst option of all. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Val. This is fun. This has been incredibly fun for me, too. Thank you so much for having me, Ethan. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. In a break with its Western allies, Japan has started purchasing Russian oil above the G7's price cap of $60 per barrel. Japan has been a steadfast supporter of Ukraine, but remains reliant on Russia for energy. The US military announced on Monday that it had killed a senior ISIS commander in a unilateral strike. Officials said that the commander's death would limit the group's ability to carry out strikes overseas. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, there's only one country on Earth whose flag is anything but a rectangle. Do you know which one it is? If you don't, you got to check out the International Intrigue newsletter to find out. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday. <laughs>